Welcome to Behind the Mirror, a podcast for students in an online program where they can have a little bit of the experience of sitting in a room and talking with a professor. Uh, today, along with Ryan, I have another guest who's going to speak about neuro. Um, and before we get into all of that, I wanted to ask you to give a brief introduction about yourself, and then we'll get rolling. Okay, well, I am a clinical psychologist. I've been doing that for longer than I would like to admit. <laughs> um, I direct the treatment assessment and treatment center in Providence, Rhode Island, and also serve on the faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior in the Brown University Medical School. And um, so you're a, a psychologist, right? Psychologist, right. How did you get into the field? Of psychology or of neurofeedback? Of psychology. Psychology. Um, how did I get into the field? Well, I didn't actually study it as an undergraduate. Um, I was studying social philosophy and um, saw myself um, as an academic social theorist. Um, I went to graduate school for that and found it just intellectually as dead as I could imagine. <laughs> After a few months of that, I uh, decided I wasn't doing that. And interestingly, it was, it was a time when my grandmother died. And uh, I went to her funeral. I was very close with her. She meant a lot to me. I saw at her funeral how much she meant to so many other people. I said to myself, I don't want to write stupid books that are dusty in a library somewhere. I want to matter to people. And so... At that point, I decided to become a psychologist. Yeah, man, I, I relate to that all. That's, that's some of that parallels my own story. Um, that was really cool. It sounds like you really wanted to have your work have meaning and impact people. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, what 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 field of psychology were you initially in? Actually, in, I started out as an infant specialist, looking at infant-parent relationships and infant development, okay. and did did uh, research on infant social development, um, attachment research, and research on infant social referencing. That's infants using of um, nonverbal signals from their parents in order to um, feel safe and understand the world. That's awesome. What did you, you guys find out? You well, what I was, so um, what babies will do if they're uncertain about something is they'll look over to a parent or a trusted adult to see what they think about that thing. And just tell by nonverbal expressions, you know, facial expression, posture, and all of that. And research had earlier had shown that when when mothers were gave up basically emotionally positive signals to their infants, the infants would cross over what looked to be a cliff. There was like a, a drop-off underneath underneath glass. So the infants would walk up to that drop-off and then they would pause. And if they looked at their mom and their mom smiled, they'd crawl across to her. If she looked scared, they would stop on the cliff. So what that said is that infants use that kind of information from their parents in order to manage safety and, and figure out the world. The question I had was, would they do the same with dads? And also, what would infants do when they got conflicting messages from their parents? Don't, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 you can't just leave us on that. Well, so Dramatic what, pause. <laughs> what we found was that um, 
the babies responded similar to moms and dads. So dad gave a happy signal. The baby approached it. We used toys. We used kind of wacky, slightly scary seeming toys that were pushed out into the room. So if the dad was a happy, gave a happy response, the baby approached. If the dad gave a fearful response, the baby stayed back. And similarly with mom. And there were no main parent differences at all. So when only one person was giving a signal, the baby responded to each parent's information essentially equivalently. When there were both signals giving, given, it wasn't as if the infant infants preferentially picked mom over dad. The infants clearly were looking at both people and getting both signals, and then they were stuck. Mm -hmm. And some of the babies handled that pretty well. Um, so there's one baby I can still remember who would, um, the dad was on his left smiling, the mom was on his right um, fearful, right, just like that. And so the baby would was interested in this thing, so would look at his dad and approach the thing and look at his dad and get a little bit closer. When he got close enough, he looked at his mom and then he backed up. Wow. So it was like he knew what he wanted, but he also was taking her input and integrated her input into a, a, a coherent, integrated response. Some other babies will look back and forth from one parent to the other and just collapse and cry. Mm. I, I felt kind of mean in those moments. <laughs> yeah, you're just torturing <laughs> babies in your mad science experiment. <laughs> so we really did see, we saw, um, we saw infants who really handled the situation quite well and took information from both parents and tried to figure it out. We saw some infants who really um, had a, a great deal of difficulty with the situation. Did, did either of that have to do with attachment styles? You know, this was a dissertation study, so I was not able to study attachment simultaneously, but I have no doubt that it would. Yeah. I just was never able to pursue it. Was there anything that was predictive of which, of how babies would, if they would respond well or if they would freeze, like go back and forth? <laughs> Um, nothing in the data that we had, um, but certainly clinically it, you, you could see that the more confident, better integrated, more emotionally balanced infants were going to do better, and they, and they kind of did. Yeah. So you could, you could trust your clinical judgment, but we didn't have any, Measures, any right. scientific data about that. Man, that is just like, that is really just the coolest thing I've heard all day. Um, it was interesting, interesting study. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It almost and th and like that was your that was your dissertation study. You said. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 worked out well. I didn't follow up with that research. I wasn't able to get any further funding, and I got more into clinical work rather than research. So, those couple of papers are out there. And, uh, you know, people read them, people still read the papers, I find out, but uh, it didn't go any further than that. Yeah, well, people don't like to give it, you know, give you money when you torture babies, so I think that's <laughs> probably not for the best. Um, <laughs> what, what about um, the babies that didn't do well? Was it ever, well, I'll say it this way. That reminds me of what I learned, you know, back in grad school 100 years ago um, about the double bind theory. Uh -huh. um, 
did you look at that at all when you were doing like your lit review or have any relationship at all in your in your work? Not really. Um, uh, we were the the main purpose of the dissertation was really looking at social referencing. So the literature that I was, you know, going through systematically had to do with social referencing and and infants' response to parents parents' own emotional responses. You know, one of the things it does it sounds um, like you know um, sort of evil research. In fact. What we observed was that when the babies were picked up by their moms or their dads, they very rapidly recovered. So it, the distress that it elicited um, was not something that was hard for them to put behind them. Yeah. By the time they were out of the room, they were fine. Yeah. Except for their fear of toys, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. So how did you go from that to neurofeedback? Yeah, that's a good question. Well. I actually went from that in terms of my career to a postdoctoral fellowship looking at infant mental health and infant psychiatry and um, did a lot of that work for a while working with infants and their parents together and their relationships um, and then I, I started to work with kids on the autism spectrum and um, other kids where clearly there were sort of fundamental differences in the way their nervous systems were organized and operated that made it hard for them to be in the world, made it hard to do treatment with them. You know, for instance, kids on the autism spectrum, they're all um, vulnerable to anxiety and to emotion to overload, information overload, sensory overload, emotional overload. And um, working with them and their parents and their teachers you could teach them how to manage better but they still were subject to this um, overload at a moment's notice and similarly with kids with obsessive compulsive disorder the tension that their um, fears elicits in them is so intense that it it can really get in the way of their lives in a very severe way so the question that i had was well could i I could teach people how to cope better. I could teach people how to manage that arousal better, but could I actually turn down that arousal so that they were not having to deal with so damn much? Mm-hmm. I thought of it as like you take a little kid and you put them on a huge stallion, a powerful stallion, right? And so they're always trying to manage the damn thing. Um, and that's kind of terrifying. That's kind of terrifying, and in, and it's impossible to do consistently and so on. The question was, could I turn that stallion into kind of a tame old bag? And that's what I was thinking about neurofeedback for. And so that's how I how I got interested in it. And how long have, have you been doing neurofeedback? Um, 28 years. No, I'm sorry, I lied, 18 years. I started in about 2000. Okay. <laughs> you just lost 10 years there, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wish I could lose it so easily, really. <laughs> oh. So you were doing the... So it sounds like when you were working with the infants you and the parents, you said, man, I can teach these parents how to really relate to these kids better. Um, and just in general you were seeing yourself as someone who was able to give people tools but you really wanted to kind of 
comes when I say get to the root of the problem? Well, it was specifically with the kinds of troubles that kids have where um, there's an obvious contribution from a nervous system that um, is struggling. Um, so, so oftentimes with infants and parents, it's actually a relationship thing. Or it's a, it's a parent having trouble dealing with some of the nervous system characteristics of the child, but it's really primarily their struggle to figure out how to to deal with this child. Um, but for a six or an eight-year-old child with, um, let's say, an autism spectrum disorder, you know, there the nervous system virtually screams at you. Uh, there's something going on here. I can't manage. I can't stand this. This is too much. And so, trying to trying to decrease arousal um, seemed critical to their welfare. How do you how are you able to tell the difference? I think in something like autism, it's relatively um, obvious. Right? Yep. Um, but I feel like in other instances, it, that might still be an issue, but it's harder to know. Like with with OCD. Um, or, you know, severe anxiety issues. How do you know that it's more about the individual nervous system and not about the relationship? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. And the simple answer is you don't. You don't really know until you, until you start um, seeing what works. Um, you know, some, sometimes it's fairly obvious. So sometimes you'll see, um, say, a child with a a proneness to anxiety and that will elicit anxiety in the part of the parent and then you'll have two nervous systems getting more anxious together and and so what happens is the parent amplifies the anxiety on the child's part rather than you know uh, calming and and settling and so on so so sometimes you can see that pretty clearly but i think more typically um you try to sort it through as best you can and psychology has had tools for a long time to try to help, you know, psychotherapy, various forms of psychotherapy to try to deal with uh, the relationship difficulties and so on. But, but it's relatively a new um, form of intervention to try to directly modulate how the brain is working. So what do you, so are you doing a lot of work with autistic disorders now? Autistic, autistic issues on the autistic Fair, fair amount. Fair amount, both with neurofeedback and with psychotherapy. And what are you seeing? How does the neurofeedback play into that? Well, sometimes it's unbelievable. Um, you know, sometimes it, it makes a huge and very rapid difference. Sometimes it makes some of a difference, and sometimes it doesn't help a bit. It, it's varied. Um, it when it when it when it works, it does seem to do exactly that thing that you now have a nervous system that. Is easier for the child to navigate and deal with and and moderate and control and manage. That is very very cool. I don't. Do you know who Stephen Porges is? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I had kind of had this idea, but I think he articulated the idea so clearly that a lot of what we see and a lot of what is presented clinically is actually syndromes. Um, and because of that, we often have um, same presenting external characteristics, 
but the internal sort of dynamics from one person to the next can be completely different. And I don't think we're really good yet at deciphering out, you know, um, those different internal sort of processes that, that, that happen yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you also see that when you look at quantitative, quantitative study of the EEG, that you can take two people with a similar pattern of um, symptoms and they can have completely different underlying EEG patterns yeah. um, and, and vice versa. So the same, the same quote unquote abnormal EEG pattern can give rise to very different types of symptoms. Which is sort of as you know, go, which goes to say that every everybody agrees that our diagnostic system is um, only minimally helpful. <laughs> that's true. I feel like that's one of the biggest like secrets of the field. Like I feel like everybody in the field knows that, but like we're not really talking about it a lot at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, NIMH, you know, published about it, and, and they they published this docu document that basically says, guys, we're we're going to completely change our orientation to um, funding research, and based on the idea that there is no one-to-one -one correspondence between genes or brain activity and symptom patterns and so on, and that um, what we have to do is have a much more sophisticated point of view than that. So. We're not going to simply say that we're going to organize all research in terms of um, these diagnostic categories, which, as you said, we all agree don't work very well. Yeah. We have to do it differently. If I have to send you an email so you can send it to me, do you still have that document? Uh, I'm sure I could dig it up somewhere. Yeah, it's called the R doc. The R doc. Okay. Is that A R E? Is that just an R? Is that nope. R R D O C? Shoot me an email if you can't find it. I'll see if I can find it in my 400,000 <laughs> file. Yeah. Um, and so are you doing research now on trying to di to differentiate um, like some of, some of these underlying issues? No, I'm not. At the moment, I'm not doing any kind of um, any kind of fundamental research like that. The only research I'm active with right at the moment is a um, large clinical trial looking at the efficacy of neurofeedback for as a treatment for ADHD. Do you have any clinical hunches about what you would find or what are some of the differences or why sometimes it works wonderfully and sometimes it kind of works and sometimes it doesn't? Um, you know, I do not have the slightest hunch about that. Um, some things I know from clinical practice, I don't, we don't know anything from the research yet. The research is still in process. Um, from clinical practice, some things are clear. So when you have um, a chaotic or a difficult family life that is fanning the flames of the symptom, you're much less likely to make progress with neurofeedback. I think it's probably also the case that if nutrition is um, not adequate, you're less likely to make progress with neurofeedback. I think it's also the case that if sleep is not adequate, you're not likely to make um, progress with neurofeedback, though neurofeedback often helps with sleep. So there are some factors that suggest the uh, diminished likelihood of success. Yeah. <clears throat> we had a lady on a few weeks ago. Her name is Bonnie Kaplan. I don't know if you're 
familiar with her? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was wonderful. And she does a lot with nutrition and um, that would send, tend to, that would sound that sounds like that would go right along with, with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, so you sound like somebody who's really into the data, um, and do you think that we are on the cusp of a lot of big breakthroughs because of the access to big data that we're, I mean, getting and being able to accumulate, or are we still... I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't have much of a sense of the likely value of big data for the questions we're asking. You know, I don't think I don't know that there's a whole lot of big data relevant to the the fine details of how the nervous system works. I just don't know. It's not something I've looked at a whole lot. I do think that I do think that um, there is a growing interest in a variety of, of treatment approaches using neuromodulation that are likely to um, have some significant benefits into the future. You know, for too long, the, the approach has been neurochemical. And that has yielded some, some helpful treatments, but it also, you know, there are many, many, many people who either don't respond to medications or have adverse side effects to medications or only respond partially to medications and so we need something else and I think that approaches for feedback various forms of feedback you know you can do neurofeedback with functional MRI yeah I read about that in your uh, paper which is fascinating yeah. so you can do that and um, EEG feedback and even the the heart rate variability feedback that you know that is consistent with Porges work um, as well as various forms of neurostimulation. We're just getting started with that. Yeah. And I think really that I think that's likely to yield some benefit in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah. But is, I mean, tell me if it's soft. To me, we're on the brink of having large sample sizes that can look at that. We can look at large sample sizes for you know, heart rate vari variability along with EEG now. Is that not something that's going to change the field or or are we, do we just not know enough about people or are we not collecting the data or well um the only thing i would wonder about is the quality of large-scale data i mean eg data can be very messy and dirty and and a waste of time <clears throat> um and so it needs to be pretty carefully processed or cleaned and uh so it, it's complicated Yeah, that's really, that may be the most significant problem in the field. Um, neurofeedback, there are only a couple of institutions in the United States where neurofeedback is taught, taught as a part of a comprehensive, you know, mental health professional curriculum. Um, other than those couple of places, maybe five or six places, I might be exaggerating, but that's really it. 
other than that, you take a you, know, you take like a four day course, and then of course you're just knowledgeable enough to really start wreaking some havoc. Um, but but there isn't anything else. So then you take multiple four day courses, and then you get some supervision. Um, but the training the training system is really woefully inadequate. Mm. And then the problem is that people people start doing the work with minimal training, and um, that impacts how the field is viewed. Yeah. The field is viewed um, with suspicion by a lot of people, and that's one of the reasons. Now, what do you think would be some of the adjustments that you would like to see in how neurofeedback training goes? Well, I mean, I would love to see it incorporated in academic programs more frequently. Um, you know, I would love to see people um, people who are applying to graduate um, school who are interested in neurofeedback as a, a form of treatment would have a bunch of places to choose from. Mm -hmm. um, but literally, they don't. They have maybe 10. And if you get interested in neurofeedback while you're in training, you know, the odds that you're going to have learn anything about it in the institution you're in a minimal so um, I think it, it hopefully over time will become a part of the academic curriculum and training it's more so the case in Europe mm -hmm. <clears throat> Europe has a stronger research tradition in neurofeedback more studies um, it's it's studied more often in universities and it's con it's considered more of a mainstream treatment in Europe than it is in the United States. Is there like Here, when I started, you know, I started in 2000, and I had been practicing for 13 or 14 years. I was on the academic faculty. I had, you know, a good, pretty good reputation. Um, and in the early years of my practice, a, a woman um, told me the story that she had taken her child to a, another member of the faculty for a medication consult. And this was a medication consult with a colleague in the department who I knew quite well. And he and I had worked together on several cases. And I respected him, and he respected me. And he said, he said when he heard that I was doing neurofeedback, neurofeedback, why is he doing that voodoo stuff? So that's how it was viewed. Yeah. And um, that's starting to shift. Um, it's starting to shift, I think, because there has been more research. It's also starting to shift because the functional MRI research, which is much more mainstream ap academic research, has pretty much proven the um, basic concept that when you get feedback about brain activity patterns, that you can change those patterns. And that idea now is no longer viewed as so crazy. But there's still an uphill battle for um, you know, public acceptance. Yeah, that, well, first of all, and this is really kind of technical, but that idea in your paper that a chaotic system, right, a, or may, maybe better said, a complex system, when it gets feedback, begins to organize. I was like, what? Just that idea in general, as someone who was trained in general systems, you know, from an MFT program, I was like, that is a crazy, fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. um, because part of the idea with chaotic systems, with complex systems, is that they are there is an inherent level of, ran, of randomness, things that are unpredictable. Okay. But if they can organize when they get feedback, to me, 
I don't even know how to compute the implications of that. Like, it just sounds like, what? Yeah. It's a, it's a really loaded, just loaded statement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know very little about the, the actual mechanism of what we're doing. Mm. We know, for instance, that with EEG feedback, you, can, you do see the changes, in, the changes that you're attempting to train in the EEG activity. So if you want to increase one particular part of the EEG spectrum, then multiple studies have shown that you can do that if you want to decrease another part of that spectrum, decrease the power or amplitude or energy in that part of the spectrum, you can do that. So that's that's pretty much been shown. Um, at the most mechanistic level, you can see the outcome that you're aiming at. Mm-hmm. But how but the, how that might lead to changes in cognition and emotional functioning and behavior, the mechanisms of that, Unspecified. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that, that part out. Of course, that's true of most medications as well. Yeah, well, yeah but we don't, we don't say that up, up front <laughs> in terms of medication. They don't say that in the commercials. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I guess I'm, I'm one of the things I did want to ask you about was how does the MRI stuff play into this? Because my understanding is the MRIs look at blood flow, but yep. EEG is looking at electrical activity. Yeah. which don't seem to be related. Well, they, they, they probably are related very roughly in terms of the fact that the uh, idea that both methods are measuring cortical activation. So when there's increased blood flow or blood oxygenation, that, that suggests greater activation and the reverse for diminished blood oxygenation. And then the same thing with the EEG. So you have a measure of, of relative degrees of cortical activation. And also with, with functional MRI, you can measure coherence, that is uh, connectivity or the degree to which two areas or more areas of the brain are working together or are working independently. And you can do the same with EEG. So they are roughly speaking measuring the same dimensions of brain function. Mm. And so because the fMRI has basically said these this these are these are the things that we know when the EEG uses similar ideas then they don't seem as like outlandish. They seem like, oh yeah well of course. Yeah and and um, a lot of the functional MRI research when it has a clinical bent, so when the goal is to to figure out a way to do feedback that's helping people with symptoms or helping them function better. Um, the, the expectation in the research is that, that that what they learned from functional MRI feedback would be translated to EEG because you're never going to be able to do treatment in a, in a functional MRI machine that's just too expensive, $500 an hour. What insurance companies will barely pay for a 45 minutes of psychotherapy, much less $500 an hour for functional MRI feedback. So in order to make it scalable, and accessible, um, it would have to be transferred to a less, a less costly type of um, brain monitoring, and that's EEG. So some of the researchers are working on that now. They'll try, they'll they'll find the pattern of functional MRI that's associated with improved performance or decreased symptoms or whatever. 
they'll try to train that and then they'll they'll try to find the EEG pattern that is um, in, indexing the same function, the same brain function, and then train it with EEG. That's dope. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's incredible. Well, see, now you can you can record EEG and functional MRI simultaneously. Yeah. So yeah. technically speaking, it's much less difficult. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that so is incredible. Are, I didn't realize you could record no. both at the same yeah. time. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Six or seven years ago, there was um, 10 or 12 of functional MRI, MRI clinical researchers, and they, they put together a gathering of, of all that research group and invited me to be the representative in that group to talk about EEG. Mm. And they, they um, talked about how their funding sources were getting um, impatient, saying, how is this ever going to be a practical treatment? And that was one of the answers. So I, I think, you know, I think at some point that's going to that's gonna bear some fruit and it will be possible with um, a session or two of functional MRI analysis to um, find the uh, EEG network that does the same job as the one that they see in the, in the functional MRI scanner and then train to either increase coordination within that, in that network Increase activity or whatever the whatever the goal for change is. So, what's the benefit of using the the fMRI if there's already this relationship between fMRI and EEG? Why don't you just use the EEG instead? A couple of reasons. One is the functional MRI sees non-cortical activity. EEG is only cortical. Mm. Uh, it also looks as if with functional MRI feedback people are able to change it much more quickly. So with EEG, it takes a long time to learn. With functional MRI, you can sometimes within one session, people gain control. Nobody knows exactly why. The theory that has made the most sense to me is that um, since blood flow is such a critical thing to the brain, there are built-in feedback mechanisms about blood flow. And so essentially, you already have a built-in mechanism for feedback but beyond that we don't know we just know that it's very rare that somebody sits down with EEG biofeedback and after after 30 minutes says okay now I can do it in all the years we've been doing this with thousands of people we had one boy actually who could um, after four or five sessions do it he could make theta and then he could stop theta but for most people, it's very gradual, less less conscious learning. Mm. Is this kid like the next like messiah? Like, like is, that, is that what is this kid? <laughs> <laughs> is this kid gonna save the world? Well, actually, this was a pretty troubled kiddo. He just had this interesting skill. Mm. So, so I think the reason for functional MRI is. Um, uh, the, the two reasons are that number one, it's more easily learned, and number two, um, you have access to subcortical structures that you don't with EEG. Yeah. Mm. So there's, you know, um, a lot more difficulty in learning regulation 
with the EEG. Like, how long does it typically take? Of course, there's going to be a lot of variation. But it sounds like you know it's not going to take one session. So no. How do you... Most of the, yeah, most of the research is based... Most of the research is actually based on 40 sessions. Wow. Some of them are 20. But it takes a while. It takes a while, yeah. Do you know why it takes so long? Mm, I mean, is that just back to the brain. feedback mechanism in the brain, or is that... Is well, that it, may, age, it may have to do with there being more noise. So when you are sitting in a chair doing neurofeedback, if you clench your jaw a little bit, you get um, artifacts that contaminates the learning. If you move your head a little bit, if you move your eyes a little bit. So it may have to do with there being noise. The noise to signal ratio essentially is, is um, high, hot, a lot higher. Um, it, who knows? I, I, I don't really have a clear idea. Mm. Well, no what, I one thing that's one thing that's important is with those functional MRI studies. So it's true that they show pretty quickly that people gain control of that. Actually, that's not showing that symptom patterns are in a lasting way being reduced. And it may turn out even with functional MRI that it takes a, a large number of sessions to result in permanent change. It can more quickly result in um, in momentary change or short-lived change. But the neurofeedback studies that I'm talking about, what they're trying to look at is um, changing complex behavior patterns and lasting change in complex behavior patterns. So there's a neurofeedback study that looked at um, one session of a certain type of, of EEG neurofeedback that showed after 30 minutes functional MRI changes. So you don't necessarily feel as if you're making the change and yet the functional MRI is showing it. So so the forty the twenty and forty sessions that's that's to get lasting change in function. You can get change actually in the EG within a session. Yeah that's so, uh, and I know you only have done a little bit about this, but I'm, I'm also positive you know a lot more than I do. Um, with brain writing with, with elders. Yeah. Um, can, I don't think most of my students know what that is. Can you give us you know, a brief overview? Yeah, in fact, I can give you an all too personal overview. I'm 65, and um, when you're 65, you start to notice that uh, things don't come as rapidly to the tip of your tongue as they used to, and um, attention gets a little bit harder, and memory's a little bit harder, so there's declining cognitive function um, with age. In fact, if you look at the data, you see across virtually every cognitive function a curve, and the curve is in increasing performance up to about the age of 30, and then declining performance from about the age of 30 on. It's too soon. I'm too young. I'm too young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. So, you know, it takes you to 30 for your brain to mature, and then it's all downhill after that. Uh, but this, that's the sad fact, right? you know. And um, so the idea of brain brightening is the question is can you, can you train the brain to function better so that attention gets better and reaction time gets faster and memory gets better and so on. 
There's just a little bit of research, a couple of small studies, you can't draw any conclusions from them. Um, it suggested that it does help. And um, neurofeedback is also used for, you could call it brain brightening for um, athletes, for jet fighter pilots, for astronauts, um, and that is um, training which is intended to be both sharpening or brightening and calming. And every, athlete, every athlete wants to be sharp, alert, but calm. So does a jet fighter, fighter pilot, so does a, an astronaut, so does a, an elite commando unit. And so um, that's um, performance enhancement neurofeedback. And it's not that dissimilar to what you do with for brain brightening for older subjects. And it sounds like you've had some pretty profound experiences yourself with with that. Well, um, actually, more recently, I'm I'm someone. There are people who are very very sensitive to neurofeedback change who notice changes more quickly, who seem, whose brain seems to respond more readily. And then there are blockheads. And blockhead is my scientific name for people who, whose nervous system are much harder to move. And I'm a, I'm a blockhead. Um, so for instance, I had a bit of a sleep problem and used neurofeedback for the sleep problem. And I noticed um, really not much change until about 20 sessions. And then it worked like a charm. I had a I had a sleep problem after a um, traumatic brain injury, a fall playing basketball, that lasted for like 25 years, and 20 sessions of neurofeedback got rid of it. Brain brightening, actually, I've been I haven't been doing that as much in part because I am a blockhead, and I've been doing um, infrared stimulation, which seems to help. Now I want to come back to that uh, infrared stimulation. Please let me help me to remember that. Um, I I'll remember it because I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we get to that, it's also my understanding that brain brightening has some sort of audio visual component. Well, you can do um, brain brightening with audio visual stimulation. So you put on headphones and goggles, and lights will flash and tones will flash at a given frequency, say 15 or 18 cycles times per second. And what happens is when your brain is getting rapid stimulation, the brain responds to each flash or each beep. And if, if it flashes or beeps, say, 18 times a second, that produces brainwave activity at 18 cycles per second, or beta, and that has an activating impact. So you can do brain brightening using audio-visual audio stimulation, um, where you're training, you're, you're entraining the brain to fire at faster frequencies. Um, that's, that's, there's a little bit of research to show that that helps with ADHD. And what's the benefit of doing you know, audio-visual versus other forms of neurofeedback or feedback? Well, the audio-visual stimulation is, is, is not feedback. It's oh, simply... Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. 
So it's much less expensive. It's a whole lot easier to do. You can buy a audiovisual entrainment system on the internet, plug in, and um, and do it. And besides the fact that it's not feedback, are there any other benefits over using that? Well, some some people um, for some people it's really helpful for um, calming them down, quieting. It can help with anxiety. Um, it can help with sleep. It's less flexible than neurofeedback, but there, there are, I'm not aware of any studies that are comparing the two. Mm. And is there any use of that with people who have dementia or? Um, you know, I don't know that literature that well, so I'm, I'm just not sure um, about audiovisual stimulation for um, dementia or mild cognitive impairment. With there is a small research body of research using um, infrared stimulation with dementia, um, traumatic brain injury, depression, and anxiety as well. That's that's kind of a newer thing. It's just you just shine in um, infrared light, which penetrates through the scalp and through the um, skull, and irradiates the cortex irradiates the brain tissue with this red red light, infrared light. And um, the early studies are showing benefit. For, just... for myself personally, um, it helps I am it's quite clear that it helps me feel sharper, my mood gets better, um, I feel more energetic, livelier. So that's actually the form of brain brightening that I'm doing with my sixty five year old brain. No, 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 no. The the system that I use is, is I think it's like twelve hundred dollars or fourteen hundred dollars. Yeah. So they just shine it. So you do it on yourself. You shine it infrared light. You just put this headset on. Oh, okay. And infrared light can go through your skull. Yeah. Wow. Again, this is newer to me. You know, I'm just looking at always when we're trying new intervention modalities that have less than definitive research, we try it out on ourselves. And so um, that's that's where we are right now with this. Mm. Yeah. Man. That is very cool, though. So, and, and you were talking about how that's been used for ADHD and a few other um, problems. Where do you, like, what's the, what's the major growth in that field? Well, you know, the field is so young, it's really hard to say. It, it has not been studied with ADHD yet. That's something which we may do. Um, there's been a little bit of research on brain stimulation with um, transcranial direct current stimulation, so small, very small electrical current. <coughs> and that's what um, I have a small study with a colleague who was formerly at Brown, who's now at NIMH, we're looking at. No no clear results yet, still uh, analyzing the data. But that the, the, the idea of that is similarly, that you're able to activate areas of the cortex with a very small electrical current. And when you activate that cortex, the question is, is it going to function better? We know from lots of research on ADHD that what you usually find is a pattern of of relative inactivation of 
of the brain networks that are responsible for attention. And so the question is, can you can you activate those networks using any of these brain stimulation or feedback techniques? Yeah, originally, originally it was I think I believe it was used for um, for helping healing in in like skin wounds, and it actually showed some efficacy for that. And then, as is often the case with stuff that works, people think, "I wonder if it might work with this." And uh, ultimately, they got to the head. I'm just really getting going with this, so I'm not, you know, to be honest, terribly knowledgeable about it. Neuromodulation. Neuromodulation. Right. And that's, you know, that's the million dollar question. I mean, for years and years and years as a psychologist, there was all this really cool brain research about parts of the brain that are active when this is happening and not active when that's happening. And as a clinician, I thought, all right, but so give me something. Mm -hmm. And um, what's happening with these studies on neuromodulation is it looks as if it might be possible to intervene directly with brain activity to improve brain function and reduce suffering. So what kind of work do you do mostly now? You know, I still do a combination of, um, of family therapy, individual, th individual therapy, a little bit of assessment, and, and neurofeedback. So I do it all. And I like it that way. Yeah. I still I still love psychotherapy, love sitting with families, um, talking to kids, trying to figure out solutions to the things that are in their way in life. Yeah. What do you think is on the frontier? Like what's the thing that you're like, man, this is gonna be the hottest thing in 10, 20 years? Um, I wish I could say it was neurofeedback. I think um, I think s there's still not quite enough advanced research going on it to, that's going to rapidly improve. You know, p 40 sessions, 40, 30 minute sessions in some psychologist's office, that's a big proposition for most people. It's not covered by insurance, it's expensive, so it has limited value. Um, and I, it needs to be faster. And I think it ultimately will get faster, but it's going to take um, some very fancy research to sort that out. In the meantime, I think um, there's probably going to be a lot of improvement in brain stimulation techniques, including you know direct current stimulation and uh, magnetic stimulation and and so on. And I don't know which of those is going to move along faster. The neurofeedback research is much more complicated. It is so hard to do neurofeedback research. So hard? Oh, 
incredibly hard. Well, think about it, right? 40 sessions. You have to have people who are willing to come for 40 sessions. You have to keep them coming for 40 sessions. You have to have them not change their medications in 40 sessions. You have to control all these other possible variables for 40 sessions. It's a mammoth undertaking. There's a guy, guy who used to be at, I think, the University of Arizona who did a little bit of neurofeedback research. He was a, he was a cognitive theorist in depression. And he, he's actually the only person I ever know of who used neurofeedback in order to test a cognitive hypothesis. There's some research to show that the left prefrontal area is um, a part of the brain that is associated with um, positive emotion and approach behavior, and the right prefrontal area is associated with negative emotion and avoidance behavior. You want to have both if you're going to survive, right? So that's important to have both of those. And so um, a researcher showed that with depression, it was associated with a relative inactivation left frontally compared to right frontally. Mm. And this particular researcher wondered if if you activated left frontally, would you change their interpretation of experience? Would you change cognitive patterns? Mm. And so that's what he did. He brought in he brought in college students, and um, some he trained to activate left frontally, which would lead them to have a more positive outlook and more positive interpretations of experience. And others he trained the right, and he found out that in fact that was true, which supported a cognitive cognitive theory of of depression. Wow. He said to me, man, I'm never doing another neurofeedback study. This is way too hard. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh. I, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of this. That makes me think of uh, Yak Pansip's work. Yeah. Um, which it sounds like he was doing some of what you guys were talking about, neuromodulation, right, to activate certain parts, certain um, emotional states. Yeah, I'm actually. Uh, is that more more recent work of his? I I haven't been following him the last maybe five or six years, so I'm more familiar with his early work on on um, play. Rats and play. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is he. I mean, he. First of all, it's sad because he died. I think about a year ago, which is like to me a huge loss. Mm. Um, but he did a lot with where he would use neuromodulation to activate different circuits. Um, and to me, that was part of the thing that was crazy was, you know, a lot of these things, like he, you know, he's famous for his research on rats and play. Um, and from what I understand, he, he felt like he could activate the play circuit by, you know, neuromodulation, which is crazy. Um, that some of the stuff is just hardwired into the brain. Well, um, but think about it, right? If if there's something that's important that the organism does, there's got to be a network in the brain that makes that possible. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's just that just seems kind of pretty obvious. And over and over, it's been found to be the case. Although over and over again, it's found to be not nearly as simple as we would like it to be. Yeah. Right, but the bottom line is, if there is an association between a set of circuits or a network in the brain and certain functions, then it ought to be the case if you can turn that 
network on, activate that network, you ought to have an impact on the function. And that's the simple idea that's involved here. <clears throat> I mean, and I think part of this is, you know, I think we grow up as people thinking that we have free will and that, <laughs> and that we, we choose. But when you hear something, you know, about, you know, Yacht talking about how there is an actual ratio of winning in play, a 70-30, you know, split where you have to win 70% of time and you can turn it on and turn it off. You begin to wonder how much of what we do is just biology running its Wired course. Wired in. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. We're mostly biology with a lot of randomness, and you just see what happens. <laughs> well, some of the very most interesting stuff I've done as a psychologist has been when I've done combined neurofeedback and psychotherapy. Yeah. And when you see, so you take these stupid little silver discs with some wires attached to them, and you paste them on people's head, and you do a few sessions, and then you start to see profound changes in a person's sense of safety in the world, profound changes in their sense of themselves, the relationship between personality and, um, and self and brain becomes so obvious. So I worked with a woman, this is probably treading on some of the territory that you covered with Seaburn. Um, in, in psychotherapy, this is a woman who had a very traumatic childhood and, and really suffered from a lot of anxiety symptoms. Pretty high-functioning woman, great. Great woman, um, he worked in psychotherapy for a couple of years and she made some pretty significant progress. Um, and then she decided to start neurofeedback and she did three or four sessions and she said, she sat down you know, for a psychotherapy session after neurofeedback and she said, you know, I realize I never felt safe in my life before now. Mm. Mm. Well, that's profound. That's incredible. It is profound. It is profound. It certainly makes you humble as a psychotherapist, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Because you said you were working for years. That's, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and Saburn says some of that in, in, in her own story, right? She was a therapist herself. Yep. And then did some of her own training, and she was like, the world was different afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We worked with an autistic um, child and um, the office I was in at that point had was a was a residential tower with first floor commercial space and there was a pool and the pool was right next to the parking lot and so this particular kiddo had come to my office a bunch of times for assessment and psychotherapy and then he started to do neurofeedback after two neurofeedbacks for the first time he noticed the damn pool so kids on the autism spectrum, you know, they have a really narrow perception, like they're looking through a toilet paper tube. They only see what they're orienting themselves to see, and anything else is actually disorienting to him. But what the neurofeedback had done pretty quickly was opened up his vision, so he took in more of the world. And that allowed his social function to improve much more, because he wasn't seeing the social world before. He was only seeing what he was looking for. So I have just a few more questions, and then I gotta let you go. The first thing I want to ask is, how is how is this related to um, ECT? Um, you know, neurofeedback is like a 
a um, willowy paintbrush and ECT is like a sledgehammer. Mm. I mean, EC, ECT is, you know, perhaps what it is, is a massive reset of brain activity. And what, what we're trying to do is just um, slightly reshape. And what about with the neuromodulation? I mean, it seems to be a similar idea. Well, um, the size of the current is tiny, right? With transcranial direct current stimulation, it's tiny. It's like the current you would get from a, a battery. You can barely feel it on your scalp. So it's not a massive shock by any means. In fact, the sham, the way they do sham studies with transcranial direct current stimulation is that the actual current, the same current that the, the active subject is getting is left on for, for 30 seconds and then faded. And nobody can tell it's a sham. So the current is tiny. It still has an impact. It still leads to changes in polarization of the neurons within its field, but compared to ECT, it's, it's trivial. Mm -hmm. And with neurofeedback, there's no input whatsoever. It's only learning. <clears throat> now, you know, in my master's program, we were basically taught that ECT was relatively dangerous and outdated. Well, I think, I think people who are up to date on ECT would contest that. I don't know the research that well. It's done very differently now. Um, I think, um, you know, I think there are some people with depression so severe when nothing else works that it probably is an intervention that's worth considering, but I think there still are impacts on memory. And it's not for me. There's a long way from, from babies getting co contradictory emotional signals to getting an electric shock and a severe electric shock in the brain. I don't go that far. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what, are you, what are you reading now? Now, if students were like, man, or, yeah, like, what's on your nightstand? Would you know, I'm reading this at the moment. Oh, you know, I'm doing my summer reading at the moment. So I don't have any, at the moment, I don't have anything to recommend. Your summer reading, is that for classes? No, 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 play, you know, beach reading. Oh, yeah, yeah dude, I'm Fun still reading. interested. Yeah. The summer reading. Right, okay. pleasure reading, yeah. Students, students still need something pleasurable. What do you, what do you got? Oh, I just read a book by Emily St. John Mandel called Station Eleven. This dystopian novel, really interesting, really well written. It's about what happens after a uh, really severe virus wipes out 99% of the population of the Earth. That's my kind of novel. Yeah. <laughs> Pick yeah. that one up. That's, that's right. Very up. interesting, yeah. very well written. Emily St. John Mandel, Station 11. Okay. Very cool. Anything else you recommend? Not at the moment. Nothing's coming to me. All right. Final question from from me. Uh, oh, you know, one book that people would probably like is um, Ian McGilchrist, The Master and His Emissary. That's a classic book, isn't it? The Divided Brain in the Making of the Western World. That's 
found that on my desk here. Not not reading it at the moment, but it's on my list. Yeah. I think, isn't that a lot of um, Antonio Damasio's research? Yeah, I mean, there's a really, there's a whole lot in here about um, hemispheric lateralization and its impact on um, culture and history. Yeah. Mm. Okay. That whole stuff is fascinating. Mm. So last last question for me: When you when you go into a therapy session, when you um, get up for the when you go into a therapy session, you meet with a family or a kid or whoever. Do you have any sort of process to get ready before going in? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I try as much as I can to clear my mind. Um, I try as much as I can to quiet myself. Get ready to watch and listen. And is that more of like a cognitive process? Do you have any sort of um, physical thing you do with that? Is that more of a... I mean, you know, a, a, a few moments of mindfulness and work on my breath. Okay. That's cool. cool. Well, Larry, look, this has been so good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's you're welcome. You. I'm happy to talk.